Good afternoon, Team Krulak community, and welcome back to another episode of Down the Rabbit Hole on the Russia-Ukraine War. I'm Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Krulak Center, here with you. And as always, we welcome Dr. Yuval Weber, our Russia SME, on what's going to be a very busy episode because it's been a, as Yuval likes to put it, it's been a very newsy period. And uh, it's it's interesting uh, because I often pester Yuval like every few days, be like, hey, something happened. Should we record now? Should we record now? And he'll 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 be very practical and be like just just wait there's going to be plenty to talk about here in a second and that is indeed the case because if we'd done one 72 hours ago we would not have the same things to talk about that we do right now so you've all welcome back and uh i think uh, as you were talking about what we'll do is kind of just pick sort of pick up the threads of things that had just happened the last time we recorded one of these and there were a few uh last time we talked the referenda in which Putin was going to annex the occupied territories, well, partially occupied in some cases that his forces were in, um, annex them through a, a you know sham referenda and include them in the Russian Federation. We were on the bow wave of the mobilization process. And then uh, I think it was just like a few hours after the explosions on the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines. Uh, those had just happened and we, we sort of hit that, but didn't really have much more information about it. So, uh, so, so I guess starting with those three, those various threads, um, how have those things developed over the last few weeks, or a few weeks, couple weeks? So I think this is like a good moment to just recognize um, it does not appear that uh, the Putin and the Kremlin have a strategy. They seem to be taking decisions that attend to the news cycle more than anything else. And so there's, there has been, as, as you put it, and one of the reasons I keep saying, let's not record today is that I am, I'm just lying down on the floor, just hoping it all, all passes. Um, but we're basically like, not just in the past, let's say, I think 10 days or two weeks since we had our last episode, but really taking like today's news, which is a series of missile strikes against civilian targets in Kyiv and other cities across the country is in effect, like a very deadly temper tantrum because the past month has been a very bad series of news events for uh, the Russian side. Um, and really, even before, you know, the, the issues with annexation, we had the Ukrainians uh, achieving success, having sort of indicated or signaled that they were going to do the big counteroffensive in Kherson. They instead went with a surprise counterattack in Kharkiv region. That one um, helped basically take back into Ukrainian uh, control huge territories of land. This created, and this is going to be a theme that basically will define not just the rest of you know this episode, but also this conflict and the rest of Putin's time in office, however long or short that may be. The counteroffensive success in Kharkiv created for the first time substantial and united criticism of Putin from basically the nationalist right. Putin has long been criticized by liberals, people from the center, you know, people from the left. He clearly does not care about that. Um, there's enough Rosgvardia and other sort of riot police, um, you know, administrative resources that can take care of all of those people who want better relations with the outside world. They don't matter. But what does matter is Putin having the reputation of being the person who knows what's around the corner, what's a couple moves down the line. 
and that he's the person who can make Russia great. He's the person who can expand Russia's territory as well as international prestige. The people who are, you know, often referred to as like military bloggers or nationalist bloggers, these are the people who have been basically embedded with uh, Donetsk People's Republic, uh, Luhansk People's Republic, but also Russian troops over the last number of years. These are the people who are on basically the front line of Russia's attacks against Ukraine. And these are the people who basically said once the counteroffensive, the Ukrainian counteroffensive was successful, was that Putin doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't basically have Russia's uh, troops, their interests at heart. And with him, it's not clear that Russia's going to win this war. And that was their anchor that was then reflected on Russian state media of not being totally, and obviously in Russian state media, people are a lot wealthier, so they're a lot more careful, but basically the same story. Is Putin going to be the person that gives Russia the victory it deserves, or is he going to give that Russia uh, the victory to Russia's, you know, feared and hated and totally despised rivals, the Ukrainians, and thereby NATO itself? That's what led Putin basically to announce, basically snap mobilization, of what's going to be at the very end of the day, several hundred thousand people. Um, some poor suckers of you know that first group uh, found themselves from notice as little as three to four days. Um, this is also at the time that we were seeing uh, Wagner, the private military company, was also recruiting heavily within Russian prisons, and a lot of those uh, people uh, took the opportunity to basically serve in Ukrainian prison instead of Russian prison. So we had Kherson, uh, we had Kharkiv, counteroffensive mobilization. That did not really change anything on the battlefield. Thereafter, we also had the Nord Stream 2 pipelines getting uh, uh, destroyed underwater. Um, and for that, we've now seen basically, still we don't have any you know, firm you know, public conclusions, but we know that the only one of the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines that was not, uh, you know, exploded in some way is the very one that Germany would not permit to be functional uh, as of a couple of months ago at the beginning of the conflict itself, thereby putting Germany in a position that either they get zero Russian gas or basically they have to open up the one they said they would never open. So um, it also ostensibly limits uh, Gazprom's uh, liability for, um, you know, not delivering gas. They're, you know, thereby being able to invoke force majeure protections. So protecting Gazprom from financial liability, as well as putting Germany in a bad spot, that suggests that it was Russia um, who did it. We then, as you said, got to the uh, Kherson counteroffensive, which also uh, was going fairly well, which then put Russia in a position where it looked like, as of a couple of days ago, that Kherson itself was in danger of being surrounded, was in danger of basically getting to the position where the Russian forces inside the city, not the entire region, but inside the city itself would be surrounded and then either destroyed or forced into mass surrender. That's what basically sped ahead all of the, um, the plans of the Russians to hold these basically false referenda. And these are the referenda that Russia said they weren't going to do it while the war was ongoing, but then the Ukrainians were doing well. So they did it, they delayed it, canceled it, then basically did it ahead of schedule. And at that point, they basically did the thing they did in Crimea. 
have these referenda these regions to declare that they no longer wanted to be part of Ukraine. As independent countries, states, whatever, regions, people's republics, they then asked for um, admission or accession into the Russian Federation. The Russian Federation, through a vote in their Federation Council, their upper house of the parliament, then Putin recognized that decision with the decree. They had a big party and they got into a very weird spot. And the weird spot was the very areas that they annexed were not under their control. So Ukraine was in the position of continuing to take land that Russia claimed as its own. That put Russia in a position where their presidential spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, said that they would continue con to consult with local populations as to the uh, trajectory and timing um, to the Russian Federation. Russia also then continued to hit Zaporizhia and Kherson with uh, rockets or with missiles, um, which is in fact Russia then hitting its own cities with missiles in order to, I'm not sure what, le legally speaking, of course. And that's basically where Russia is right now. They don't have their own international borders uh, defined. That's a that's a weird and bad place to be in. And then we get to, and I think this is the, the part where <laughs> the news is moving very fast, is the Kerch Bridge, which connects Crimea to uh, the Russian mainland. That was attacked in some sort of way. Uh, and welcome to discuss like what that was. Um, but in general, this is, uh, you know, as we were talking beforehand, as, as you mentioned, this bridge, very complicated, uh, you know, engineering feat. This is the symbol of taking Crimea into the Russian Federation. And as I said, I think on a couple of episodes ago, Crimea is not Russia's Jerusalem in terms of, you know, the symbolic feature of success, the symbolic heart of the country, but it is Putin's Jerusalem. And the bridge to Crimea is the symbol of everything that Putin has worked towards in his time as Russia's leader. And that's essentially the core thing that was attacked. And that's where we got today to Russia's, um, you know, use of whatever precision guided munitions it has left to attack Ukrainian cities and uh, their infrastructure, but not hitting any military targets that would have affected you know, in some way, what Ukraine is able to do on the battlefield. And that, you know, trying to do that as quickly as possible is Russia's last two weeks. It's, and it's, it's, uh, the, how I, I, I sort of, I feel a small, very small amount of, you know, pity for, you know, Putin's official spokesman, because, um, you, you, you got to change your story, you know, almost, almost on the hour, depending on, on what's happened. You know, as you mentioned, they were bombing their own territory recently annexed because they didn't actually control it. And if I remember correctly, uh, the city of Lyman, which is back in the Kharkiv region, you know, that was annexed and then it was liberated like one or two days later. And the story was, oh, no, that we didn't annex that part. Right. That wasn't included in the, in the annexation and the referendum, um, although it, it was 48 hours before. Uh, but I so looking at the. Uh, at the the bridge and Putin's response. And this kind of, we, we can talk a little bit about that more here in a minute, but that also, as we were talking before we recorded, 
there are some there are some power struggle dynamics going on uh, inside the various, you know, Putin's apparatuses or apparatus of power um, between the military and various security services. And it's, it's possible some of that is tangled up in, in the bridge itself. But if we could maybe go back uh, a, a few days or a week or so, there were some there were some manifestations of that, I think, within Russia and Moscow as well, indicating that there were I don't know about if power grab is the right phrase, but, you know, finger pointing and trying to shift blame. And uh, wh what what did you see in terms of that among those various apparatuses? And what does that indicate about, you know, one, the various perspectives of those apparatuses about how well or not the war is going? Um, but what does it also indicate about, you know, Putin's hold on the levers of power in the state? It's it's a good question. And that that first basically requires us to figure out, like, why has Putin been able to rule more or less, um, uh, you know, single handedly? Uh, although he spent four years as the prime minister when he was initially term limited, um, they've since re change the constitution so he doesn't really have to worry about term limits anymore but in essence how has he ruled for 22 years and counting at this point he's been able to do it through doing two very different things one is the ability to impose discipline on all of his subordinates and the subordinates basically saying oh i need to do something because the boss is going to be mad at me so therefore let me shape what the next person beneath me is going to do so on and so forth and that's you know what the Russians call the power vertical, the the belief that in essence power ultimately from the the lowest civil servant in some dusty village in the back end of beyond that that person thinks oh, I have a boss and that person has a boss so on and so forth and eventually you get to Putin. That is basically the vertical of power. The other key thing that Putin has been able to do for basically so many years is maintain the balance of all the different elite factions so that in essence all of those elite factions think you know that with their heads and all the you know various competitors to each other i may not like my rivals i may not totally love all of my allies but if putin weren't here basically to keep the peace between us there's no possible way i would trust any of these piranhas around me and if I don't trust these piranhas around me, it's likely that they don't, if they don't trust me either. Or the thing to do is basically have uh, preventive strikes against all of the potential people who could be taking me out. And that is what, you know, Russians often refer to, you know, this sort of Game of Thrones type thing where different people are taking each other out in order to protect themselves. Uh, Russians call that smutnaya vremya, times of troubles. That's the key thing that Putin has been able to do for so long is to get people to think whatever I think about Putin directly, whatever I think about, you know, the trajectory or the direction of the country. The one thing that I'm totally convinced that he can do is that he can mediate and moderate all of these different rivalries at the elite level better than anybody else. He's the best of all available alternatives. So what we've seen over the last number of weeks isn't just the inability of the Russian state to really do things, which suggests, you know, that's about the vertical of power, getting sort of state capacity to do th specific things that the regime wants. 
the thing that is most worrisome probably to Putin is that you have uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who's outside government, and who's basically his only qualification for the job is that he's Putin's friend. Him and Ramzan Kadyrov are directly telling the generals the, in the Ministry of Defense, up to and including the Minister of Defense and the uh, the, sec the the chairman of the, not the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, the chairman, the chief of the Russian General Staff, uh, mixing between Gerasimov and Mili, uh, their titles, is that they're telling these people, you know, they should be stripped of all their medals, they should just be given a gun and sent to the front barefoot. The deputy head of Kherson region, uh, you know, Russian appointed official, uh, Kirill uh, Steremosov, he said that Shoigu should kill himself. Now, these are all people who are not, you know, clearing their comments, uh, you know, with Putin, but these are people who don't believe that the military, the actual Ministry of Defense and the military are doing well enough in the field that they will be protected by Putin as soon as someone else gives them a shove. And that indicates not that Putin has lost control of like, let's say, bureaucracy but that people aren't afraid of him in terms of being able to mediate these disputes by forcing Putin to make these choices. You back the losers in the Russian army or you back us who basically want to take the fight to the Ukrainians that much harder. And that's very destabilizing uh, signal for Russian power. I, uh, and I do recall, and so for those, uh, for the listeners just to, to revisit those names, um, Kadyrov, he is the, he's the current Chechen, I don't know, what's his title? Warlord? Um, just him, yeah, no, he and he and Putin have basically a medieval relationship. There's a lord and the vassal, and the vassal has his own, his own fiefdom. But technically he is the, uh, so he's the leader of Chechnya, um, and has a very, uh, he's one of the few people in Russia that has his own private army of roughly 20,000. Okay, yeah, I wanted to just make sure we identified the right person. Um, although I think, as we've also discussed, um, they're in some aspects they're very much sort of a Hollywood army. They're great about taking TikToks of themselves in combat, and I'm using air quotes here because a lot of those promotional videos have been identified as not actually being in combat or or uh, or or staged with various various levels of production values. Um, but the in terms of the comments of you know these these very senior generals, like people, you know, maybe people in, in the Western, in the U.S. sort of military may not be as familiar with Shogu, uh, but Gerasimov is a name that was on a lot of people's lips, you know, back in sort of 2014, 2015 timeframe and this magical doctrine that he, you know, allegedly had, I don't, although I don't think that, uh, I, that was that was a little maybe more made out of it than was actually there, or maybe a lot more. I don't know. But point is, his name was very well known. So to, to have these folks told to basically go and throw themselves on their swords at the front line, it's a very strange dimension, you know, sort of shift in who's in Putin's good graces to watch. Um, so then let's go to the the attack on the Kerch Bridge itself, because again, as we were talking about before we hit, started hitting recording, there are there's. It's not certain what sort of method of delivery the strike was done with, um, but as you were mentioning, there's there's a maybe a non-zero probability that this uh, you know sort of shifting 
power dynamic between the apparatuses of security and military uh, may have had something to do with it themselves. Um, if you want to maybe ex expand on that, that, that theory. So we, we, you know, over the past uh, couple of days, there's been in essence, four different, let's say, uh, theories or sort of acts for what happened. Two chains did it. And then two were into the realm of more conspiratorially minded, uh, individuals. So obviously the, the. Let's, you know, the two, the two theories of, uh, Ukrainian, uh, performance is that 1, this could have been some sort of missile attack, uh, and 2, some sort of. Special operations, um, truck bomb that was a, basically a truck bomb. That was time to detonate underneath a train that was carrying fuel and that's much more flammable. So both of those are obviously seemingly very complicated to get through Russian air defense as well as getting through basically the idea that Russia knows what's going on in its, um, on its roadways. And what we were saying beforehand is the Ukrainians have been very active in promoting sort of the truck bomb theory, because this, as, as you said, I want to take your glory. Uh, this puts the, um, this, uh, plants the seed of doubt into, uh, the Russians and basically them having to inspect so many more different trucks. Uh, that basically cross this roadway and basically providing um, one more, at least short term logistical difficulty for the Russians. We saw that this, um, this attack basically took out one of the roadways, although there's two roadways um, and damaged the rail lines that go above the roadways. This is not probably, probably the Russians are going to be able to uh, fix this over the next couple of weeks, uh, perhaps, you know, the next couple of months, but obviously this slows down what the Russians can do in terms of supplying Crimea and therefore um, supplying Kherson. So could could be the Ukrainians just slowing down logistics as they've done basically throughout this uh, conflict um, so that they can uh, attack Kherson much more aggressively. Now, the uh, the Russians did it to themselves stories. Uh, we should at least share with listeners and viewers. Um, first theory that I heard was the Russian military did this, um, and the, and the story here goes, they know that they're going to lose in Kherson. They're just going to lose that. They're going to have a humiliating loss. The army in the field on the, basically the West bank, uh, of the Dnieper river in Kherson, 15,000 troops there. They're all going to get destroyed, engage in a mass surrender. It's going to be humiliating. That basically is baked into how fast the Ukrainians are advancing and the slowness of basically the mobilized troops getting to the front. So knowing that this is going to happen since the FSB, the intelligence service, the security services are responsible for the defense of that bridge. Having some basically story to tell about how they didn't get the supplies in time because of the lax security. Provides the military with a story on how they can basically shift the blame from themselves to, uh, to the FSB. So there's that the, and so, uh, and then of course, like, you know, you're starting into, um, again, various stories on who's responsible, uh, do the Russians do it to themselves? And so the other story that I heard was, are, you know, <laughs> is that because, um, Putin and the people around him noticed 
that there is clearly rising social anxiety about basically this war and the special military operation. Basically, even the state-run public opinion polling shows that you know people continue to support the special military operation. They continue to support Putin. But in terms of second order issues, the numbers of people who know um, people who are leaving the country, who know people who want to leave the country, uh, people reporting anxiety, people reporting anxiety in others, all the things that people want to say about themselves, but they're too afraid to do so. An attack on something that Russians consider their own and not just something that's happening in a different country, that this will then basically shape the information space inside Russia itself to then justify any manner of brutal, brutal, horrible things against the Ukrainians and, in fact, create the demand within Russia to do all the sort of super violence that we've seen. And in the last basically like uh, 12 hours or so since the Ukrainian, so let's say 12 to 72 hours, when the Kerch Bridge was hit, all of these sort of nationalist bloggers, all these people on TV were really um, the bloggers more, the people on TV less, all of them were criticizing Putin, directly or indirectly, criticizing his choice of military people, criticizing the military strategy, criticizing basically power itself in a way that had not been seen even over the last couple of weeks, even after the Kharkiv counteroffensive, which led to the mobilization. So therefore, and what in the last 12 hours, all these people could not hide their excitement over basically destruction in Ukraine. They have a need to injure, to hurt, to see others being hurt in order to make themselves feel better. This is in essence, the theory of basically mass indiscriminate violence that we've seen how they were able to achieve, you know, basically a stalemate slash victory in Chechnya, how they're able to achieve victory in uh, Syria. And this is what they're doing to the Ukrainians right now. So between Ukrainian missile attack, Ukrainian truck bomb, military seeking to you know shift the blame onto others and the russian state basically preparing the russian population for more violence and therefore reprisals so that's basically the range of you know who done it and that, that is a that's a very tangled web and uh for our listeners and viewers when we were talking about this before you know i told you all like it this this there's cutting off your nose to spite your face. And this almost, if this is the inside job, this is, this is like cutting off your head, despite the rest of you. Um, I, yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't get it, but that doesn't mean, doesn't mean that there's, there's a zero chance that it happened. And I think we'll go into here in a second, but we're, we're, we're really, if you haven't got the sense yet out there that there are different decision-making calculuses at play here, um, this is potentially another data point in that, you know, that we are really looking at different priorities from what, you know, from what the Ukrainian, we and the Ukrainians kind of see and what the Russians, Russian populace and Russian leadership sees. So shifting to, we, we you know, we talked about the Russian response a little bit already today. Um, but uh, so I think it was early, it would have been like middle of the night, our time, I think early, you know, early morning, basically the beginning of the business day, Ukrainian time. But, uh, you know, the Russian response and they said it was coming and I, I'm, nobody was surprised, I think, when it was. But um, it was one of the highest volume of, you know, sort of long range missile strikes that have that have been done for a considerable amount of time in the conflict. 
Uh, I think it was on the order of close to 80, 80 missiles and munitions that were launched. I think about half of them actually got through. And, uh, you know, so if, if you want to talk about, you know, with these, and we've mentioned before, Russia's got dwindling stocks of long-range precision munitions. Their ability to reconstitute those stocks is getting degraded because, you know, the supplies their economy needs to make those things are being hit by the sanctions, you know. But with all that, with with this unusually large swarm of missions, what did they choose to shoot at? And and what was, you know, what, what was the reaction on the Russian side once they'd seen what they'd done? So, yeah, so basically they went after... They didn't go after military targets. They went after uh, uh, They went after symbols of the the Ukrainian people, such as the uh, National University, and they were able to get um, public parks and the children's playgrounds. So, with whatever munitions they had left, they didn't go after military targets that would make some sort of difference on the battlefield. The effect, and this is, you know, as we're talking, it clearly, at least the evidence seems to be building up, is that this missile, this sort of missile salvo was intended for the bloggers and for the sort of people who go on to um, the talk shows in the evening time. So about the narrative itself, the narrative, you know, up until, um, you know, yesterday was we're not doing well in the battlefield. The Ukrainians are coming after us. They're hitting our treasured symbols. The talk today, we're finally giving it to them. And that suggests that this is not really going to change the trajectory of the conflict. Because if Putin is more concerned about shoring up his domestic critics rather than trying to win on the battlefield, there's certainly going to be a lot more violence against Ukrainian cities, but certainly not an uptick in violence against uh, the troops in the field. So as the troops in the field keep advancing, you know, on the Russian front line, we're going to get to basically whatever is going to be the conclusion of the conflict. That and so one of the things that we we're looking up right before this started, uh, you know, taping this episode is uh, President Biden and President Zelensky of Ukraine. They had a call today, and in the White House's readout, uh, the the White House said. Uh, that they were going to increase the supply of advanced air defense systems to uh, Ukraine. Obviously, they didn't say exactly what it's going to be. We could go into the you know the different sorts of systems that the United States has, you know, against cruise missiles, against ballistic missiles, etc. But what this was meant to do, ostensibly from the Russian side, is essentially threaten the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian uh, government with. We're going to do so much more violence against you that our capacity for violence basically exceeds your capacity to withstand that violence. Ukrainian people seem to uh, hate Russians and Putin like just the same as before. This is probably not going to um, you know break their resolve. So we see that this is probably not going to change too much of the dynamics in terms of the Ukrainian people, the Russian leadership. But it changes the nightly news in Russia. It also, in terms of trying to create something for uh, the you know Ukraine and its partners in the West, ostensibly what the Russians are trying to do is get the West to believe that Ukraine is not an investment worth continuing to pour 
diplomatic capital, military equipment, all the various things that uh, the West has done in order to shore up Ukraine's ability to defend itself. But today, basically every single Western leader uh, said, um, we're gonna open up this fund. We're gonna give this piece of military equipment. Um, as I said, uh, air defense coming from President Biden's office. So in terms of what Ukraine is able to do, they're able to carry on the status quo of winning on the battlefield. Russia got basically a good news cycle out of this. And that seems to continue to, that seems to continue to suggest that Ukraine is going to take more and more of its territory, at least for the short to medium term. It's unclear at this point whether they're going to continue to be able to fight throughout the winter. But if they are, then Russia is really going to have to see whether they can continue to defend their gains over the course of the winter. They haven't been able to do so in basically better circumstances, better weather uh, than before. And yeah, and actually on the uh, I think on the the fighting in the winter side, not to to delve off too much on to a sidebar, but um, I've been noting in in some of the reports of you know what other countries, including European countries, and I want to say maybe I think it was Germany within the last week, um, specifically donating you know cold cold weather clothing and articles that would enable you to continue operations, um, you know once. Um, once conditions deteriorate to the point of, uh, you know, the non-campaigning season as historically winter was sort of looked at. Uh, and I think it's certainly something as, as we're getting into the, you know, the fall now here, getting into the colder weather in Europe, something, something to watch because yeah, you know, historically, and especially in that, that part of Europe, you know, winter end of year campaigning season, um, there are certain, I, I, the, I think the environmental constraints on things like, you know, roadways and supply lines would continue to happen. But um, if one side has really good cold weather gear, that makes it easier, at least for the human side, to continue the operation. Whereas the other side, we talked about this either the at the very beginning of the war, and then I think it was one or two episodes ago, you know, but on the conversely in February, you had Russian soldiers who were, you know, had severe frostbite or who were found frozen on the battlefield. That situation has likely not improved, especially if you're shotgunning hundreds of thousands of conscripts um, and you've already emptied out, you know, the best gear from your storehouses. And, and in fact, I think it, it was earlier this week, there was a video making the rounds of Russian soldiers, not getting like cold weather socks and cold weather boots, but some sort of foot wrap that looked like something out of, you know, first world war or the, or the 1800s. Yeah, no, it was, um, would have been familiar to veterans of like the Napoleonic wars. Yeah, you know, and I, you know, I think, and I think back to like, you know, what do, what is a Western, what does the American military do for cold weather operations? You know, we, we got all kinds of like, you know, in, you know, there's layers of socks, there's layers of, of, uh, of gear and, you know, fleece underclothing and, and Gore-Tex waterproof stuff, like all, all kinds of things to help you be warm. And this, this is what, you know, the Russians are pulling out is, is foot wraps very very stark contrast yeah you know, even to as something something as simple as what your foot is wrapped in um okay i guess uh i think we we've sort of hit the usual you know what's the state of russian media uh, you know putin made them happy today you know like as you said for a news cycle um although i continue to wonder um is is that really like the time frame that their decision making is feeding in right now because yeah as we again we, we talk about a lot of stuff before we start recording, but 
the decisions in the targeting cycle that we see for the use of these, you know, increasingly limited munitions, it's it's very diff it's very hard to understand. Um, you know, if you were if you were holding back eighty something PGMs to to do a really hard counterpunch, um, okay, you you just got that today, but you didn't change the impact on the battlefield, but you shored up your domestic support for a new cycle. You know, is there really no longer term thinking going on to be like, hey, maybe if if I lose the war, maybe that's really bad for domestic support. Maybe those missiles would have been better applied to Ukrainian supply lines running through Western Ukraine. Or if if not that, you know, there are still supply lines going to the Kharkiv and Kherson fronts. That's now 80 fewer missiles that didn't go there that you now don't have in the future. Um and it, it just seems like an incredibly short-sighted targeting targeting cycle, you know. But is is that what sort of Putin is doing right now? He's he's like a day-to-day -day, um, survival mode in terms of just sort of trying to to shore up his domestic base for a little bit longer. Is there is there no sort of longer-term strategy that you're seeing? Well, I mean, the the strategy is they have to do something now. Uh, now that. Now that it's clear you know, through through data released by um, uh, the Russian Statistical Service Agency, um, the Ministry of Finance, the Central Bank of Russia, it's it's become clearer that we're in a position right now to basically, when thinking about the Russian economy, like that's sort of like a good long term question. The Russian economy is at a point where it's clear the sanctions are really doing a number. Uh, the GDP of Russia is probably going to go down, depending on various estimates, somewhere between 5 and 7% just this year. That means that there's going to be budget cuts for everything but basically defense stuff going forward. So, therefore, 2023 is going to be something in between a giant recession slash depression. And everyone's going to be upset because there's not going to be much spending on anything that Russians inside Russia can enjoy. There's not going to be much in the way of imports coming in. So all news for basically next year, economically speaking, is going to be bad. That suggests that you need to do something now. The battlefield, as we described, it's going in one direction and it's one direction only. Therefore, what can be done? Maintaining basically popular support and trying to use things such as, you know, targeting like, uh, let's just uh, right-wing supporters in the United States and other countries um, and trying to basically shift elections in Western countries so that new governments or the, the Congress goes to like different uh, parties so that the amount of support that Ukraine gets from Western partners becomes that much more difficult. That seems to be basically the six-month strategy. Lose as little as possible Creative as much violence as possible against the Ukrainians so that your basically most fervent supporters are, are, are satisfied, you know, with their, with their bloodlust and then see over the course of 6 months. Can basically Europe and the United States change enough. To just limit what Ukraine can do and once basically Western support for Ukraine is limited in some way. That's the moment that basically the, the bleeding or the losing can stop. And they can try and get some sort of uh, negotiated settlement with the Ukrainians that would allow them to basically pause the conflict while they uh, they rebuild their military. That seems to be as fantastical as that sounds. That seems to be the six month strategy at this point. 
Yeah, and, and as you describe it right there, it's it it's not a great it's not a great strategy. It's kind of what they have left, but it's also it it's not without you know some some merit from a certain perspective. Um, although I you know again I think a, a lot of the assumptions that Putin has made from before the war started you know through today he is badly miscalculated and it's entirely possible he'll find that that you know even that strategy of trying to do certain things to influence the next you know um european or american election cycle don't pan out quite the way he wanted um and that's also assuming that you know the there are certain things the ukrainians might not do in the coming weeks depending on on how the cold weather goes and you know i think something to definitely watch is you know the thus far the ukrainian government has proven you know pretty shrewd and forward-looking in a way that putin has not been at all so i, I would not at all be surprised to watch uh, sort of attempts for much more aggressive action on the battlefield through the winter season in defiance of some historical expectation because they know that as we said in one of the first episodes like there's lots of clocks ticking that you know influencing western support is one of those clocks um but nothing succeeds like success you know which is why uh you know you keep going for a few more weeks into the winter that's just going to provide more evidence that as you've mentioned before they're using weapons to effect you know give them more and we can wrap this thing up soon um so we'll see so i guess uh we've been going for a while i'll ask you one last point here and then we can wrap it up is with all the things that have been going on in the last couple of weeks what's what's one big thing you're going to be watching whether it's internally to russia or on the battlefield in Ukraine here in the next week or so. Uh, I guess for the for the next week or so, it's it's basically the 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 Twitter slash TikTok wars. Um, the ability of Putin to basically manage the elite in fighting, because if these people, because it could very well be that Putin is allowing this to happen, so that basically the Prigozhin, you know, the, the Wagner guy uh, and Kadyrov, they get their licks in on the military and then they'll see, like, does this motivate the military to do any better? Uh, the Russians have just appointed um, a general, Surovikin, uh, uh, to oversee basically the entire special military operation, as it were. This is a guy who's known for, uh, one, responsible for the only deaths. Uh, in 1991, when basically the Soviet hardliners were doing a coup against Mikhail Gorbachev, um, they failed and it was nearly bloodless. But there were three uh, civilians who were killed uh, from the Russian military that was basically trying to take over various points in um, in Moscow. The young captain responsible for uh, ordering his troops to fire upon the civilians, this exact same guy. Uh, that was the first time he went to jail. The second time uh, he was involved in just like a bit of gun running. Um, this is also a guy who was responsible for quite a lot of violence against civilians in Chechnya uh, and in Syria as well. So certainly we are going to see how the Russian military responds to basically criticism coming from uh, outside the state, from you know these security services connected people, um, and whether that makes any difference to how well they're able to uh, reverse gains on the battlefield and how they're able to win the PR battle on uh, on Russian TV as well. Yeah, the uh, whether the Russian military can change is always something to watch. And, 
yeah, I, I, I guess we'll see because, uh, as we we mentioned before, their their ability to be a learning organization or a non-learning organization does not seem to have improved over time. Um, you know, sometimes a new leader can come in and put a new new culture and kind of a new approach to things in if they if they're competent enough. Um, you know, something to watch. But again, you know, there, there's a clock running against him because how do you how do you get that culture built uh, when you're trying to stop the bleeding of, of huge reversals on the battlefield? So, all right, well, we will we will look at that and we'll revisit that next time we sit down and do one of these. All, all right, right. Yuval, um, again, I always thank you for your time and um, I, hope, I hope you spend less time on the floor here in the coming weeks. Yeah, and uh, and and more enjoying some other things that are more pleasant. But uh, happy trips. Yeah, you too as well. Mm-hmm.